0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of A Voyage to Antarctica. I'm your host, Alok Jha. This week we're going to the ice with legendary explorer, author, fundraiser and public speaker Sir Ranulph Fiennes. Sir Ranulph was described by the Guinness Book of Records as the world's greatest living explorer. That was back in 1984 and since then he's broken many more world records and led many more expeditions this remote region. He's the only man alive to have ever travelled around the Earth's circumpolar surface. More people have been to the moon. His record-breaking expeditions include travel by riverboat, hovercraft, manhole sledge, skidoo, land rover and ski, and have raised many millions of pounds for charity. He's the author of numerous books, including a biography of Robert Falcon Scott. And he's the vice-patron of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. Sir Fines, Fiennes, welcome. Can I ask you a question which I think is probably on the lips of everyone who um, hears your stories? What made you want to become an explorer?
1: Well, going back to sort of when I got born, four months after my dad had been killed in the Second World War, commanding the tank regiment, the Royal Scots Greys, at the Great Battle of Alamein and so on before he was killed near Monte Cassino. And I was brought up by my mum, in South Africa, um, to just adore my dad, my dead dad, and want to do nothing in my life other than become the colonel, as he was when he was killed, of the Scots graves. So that was, for the first 18 years of my life, my one aim, not to explore or anything like that. And I had to go to Sandhurst College to get to be a regular British officer. And to do that, you needed to pass to A levels. And sadly, and I'm not blaming my education in South Africa, but um, I failed to get my A levels and therefore could not be a regular British officer. So I did the next best thing. I went to a cadet college and got a short service commission, hoping that somehow or other, I could still get to be Colonel of the regiment, but it turned out that that was no good. So I ended up on postings to various places including for two and a half years, seconded to the army of the Sultan of Oman in Arabia. And as part of that, found myself in very weird remote parts of the greatest desert on earth, fighting the Soviet Union uh, Yemenis from across the border in the Yemen. And I got a taste at that time, while still in the army, for travel in remote parts. And when I left, Uh, I had no sort of income, but with my wife and childhood sweetheart of many, many years, she decided that we could make a living, not military, but civilian in the world of exploration in remote areas.
0: And so how did you go about choosing the first place you wanted to explore, the first challenge?
1: Well, the first challenge I managed to do while I was still under the sort of financial help of the British Army which was during army leave with other army people to do one on ice quite close to the UK. We realized very quickly, me and Ginny, my late wife, that everything we did must be cost free. We must be sponsored by every single thing, even on an expedition to Europe. And we did it to Norway's biggest glacier, the Jorstedalsbrei and we used parachutes to get 10,000 feet to 6,000 feet with all our survey gear. And we did it to help the Norwegian Hydrological Board under Dr Gunnar Erstrom. And so we took army surveyors with us as well, having taught them to parachute. And that was the very first attempt. And basically, to get sponsorship, you need media coverage. We learned these lessons earlier on. To get media coverage we would need to break world records because that's what really makes the media interested in your group. So world records of a polar nature, because the Brits are keener on polar than hot stuff, as we soon discovered. To get that, we had to look into what polar records there were. And of course, there are only two real poles up top and the bottom. And we discovered to our annoyance, I suppose you could say, that most of the existing polar records, north and south, had already been broken by the Norwegians. They are the best in the world at that sort of thing, and we would have to somehow beat them. Ginny discovered that the one record that they tried to break and found impossible was to do the first ever circumpolar journey around planet Earth. Never been gone by any route by anybody ever. More people have been on the moon. That is what she decided we would go for, she decided that in 1972, a couple of years after we married.
0: Tell us about that journey. I mean, that's, that was a, an epic trip that took many, many years to plan, that tens of thousands of miles. Um, you know, w- when, you, when you had the idea, were you always confident that you'd be able to do it or was there a sort of element of, of, of fear and sort of anxiety about it as well?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it was actually my wife Ginny, whose idea it was, was serving up porridge one day. And I said, go around the world. Is this the kind of conversation you have over breakfast? Yeah, that's right. And uh, I said to her, but Ginny, go around the world. Lots of people have been around the world. No, do it from south to north or north to south. That has definitely never been done. And only the Norwegians have tried doing it in bits. We will do it not in bits, but as a single three or four year journey of permanent travel. And we will go from uh, the Thames because we'll need a ship because... Wherever you go, the oceans get in the way at some points. And we'll use a ship, which ice strengthened, obviously, to drop a land group off when we hit land that got in the way of a simple route, 0-180. So zero starts at a place called Greenwich on the Thames. So get a ship, put your land group on the ship, leave Greenwich on the Thames and head down zero. First obstacle is called France. We'll unload Land Rovers on the port at um, Calais and say goodbye. You then go down to hit the sea at Barcelona. The ship will go round and collect you from there, take you south down zero to the next obstacle, which is called Africa. Land Rovers will be dropped off, three of them. Land group would be ideally three people and a base commander. and The base commander would have to do the radio, therefore good at Morse code in those days. Because remember, in those days, there were no polar satellites, no no polar orbiting satellites, so there was no g p s or SatNav or sat phone. You'd be using the same sextant or theodolite as Shackleton and Scott did all that few years before, maybe fifty or sixty years previously. But we would head on south, and whatever obstacle we hit before we reached the south pole, um we would not be allowed to fly one meter of the entire Three and a half year journey. To get the plan underway, once was agreed, we Shackleton had tried crossing Antarctica, not the whole lot, and he had the help of the government through the Royal Navy. We would need help. Well, I had been in a regiment called the Special Air Service in the 60s. And although they had thrown me out after a year through blowing up civilian property with army explosives, which is not popular. They liked the idea of this expedition, and seven years after I was chucked out, they sponsored us with uh, headquarters in Sloane Square or up Kings Road, which uh, was free, and uh, they helped us get permission from the Americans and the Danes and um, everybody who got in the way on the Zero Meridian. So we had that basis from which to get all the sponsors, including the ice-strengthened ship that we would need, and that came to in 1972, uh, 29 million pounds worth, and we didn't spend a penny. We had 1,900 sponsors. We worked for seven years in the SAS barracks without pay except Territorial Army, which we were in. And we got all the sponsorship, had no checkbook, no account, got uh, Chub Fire kindly sponsored us with the loan of a ski plane. We never flew in it ever, But it had to drop off things like prefab huts in the middle of Antarctica. And uh, that's how we got going. Seven years unpaid working in pubs in Chelsea to make a living to pay the gas bill back home.
0: When all of that um, preparation and all of that planning and all that sweat and hard work was done, how did you feel? What was the sort of emotion you had?
1: Well, the more time you spent, seven years, and there's two of us, my wife and me, 14 years of our lives unpaid, you really want to succeed, not waste all that time. So it gives you a complete impetus to do everything, even if it was the opposite to which had been allowed legally before. So since the Foreign Office in the UK, the Polar Desk in Whitehall, categorically refused to let any Brit citizens travel in the middle of Antarctica, except at bases on the coast, during the eight months of winter, Uh, That cut everything out, basically, and we had to break that record with the help of the SAS persuasion of the Foreign Office and so on and so forth. And uh, luckily, the Norwegians also, their government stopped them going.
0: So what what was in your mind when you were organising all this, when you were trekking all that way and doing all of this work, what was the purpose of the expedition? What did you think you wanted to achieve from it? Was it about raising awareness of places or was it just the challenge that you wanted to conquer?
1: Initially, as I've said, we wanted to break the world record, whether it was looking for a lost city, um, which we were doing in Arabia, or whether we first of all wanted to do the circumpolar journey around Earth, to break a record as a British, well, international, because we recruited people on the ship, for instance, for four years unpaid, might come from Fiji or America or Canada or Uh, South Africa from nine different countries, in fact. So we needed a co-leader. The the base commander and radio operator would be Ginny. I would be the leader of the ice group in the icy areas like Antarctica, the Arctic and the Northwest Passage. And uh, Anton Bowering volunteered to be the marine leader for all the marine bits. So we delegated into three and uh, that's how we got going.
0: So let me take you back to the turn of the 20th century when explorers were trying to discover and you know work out what, what was what Antarctica was all about. Um, did, when you were planning your own expeditions, when you were thinking about your kind of career and exp- uh, your future career in exploration, were you looking back to these these sorts of heroes like Scott and Shackleton?
1: Um, if they were relevant in anybody who tried to do what we were trying to do bit by bit, uh, like uh, Shackleton, one bit, Scott, uh, another bit, um, Sir John Franklin, the Northwest passage bit, all of them were killed, um, and Amundsen. All those people did an expedition, but we were trying to do all their expeditions in a single journey um, over three years, probably, depending on how we did. And we would have uh, scientific work to do as well, Incidentally, in the mid-1990s, a Canadian magazine said that all my expeditions had no scientific content. So we sued them in high court with a jury of 12 people in London, and they had to pay £100,000. We showed them the 600-page scientific report, which had come out just of that one expedition, uh, because of all the scientists that we took with us, like two oceanographers for three years on the ship and so on and so forth. So science is a big part of it, even if we don't go into it in a big detail. Charity, our expeditions to date have raised just on £18.9 million for various, mostly UK charities like Multiple Sclerosis, Marie Curie, Breakthrough Cancer, and so on. So charity, science, and breaking the world record under the name of the UK, even if it's an international team.
0: The, the descriptions you make of, um, of the kinds of expeditions that these explorers made or tried to make in uh, at the turn of the, of the 20th century, I mean, they sound, they sound horrific to those of us who are not explorers. They sound very gruelling. Um, I, I, I wonder, when, when you try and bring these things to life, what, what is it about those stories that you want people to know? What is it about the explorers of the, of the past that you think um, we, uh, as, as, as living comfortably right now, um, should know?
1: Well, lessons learned. Um, we learn don't take anybody on your team who's had previous frostbite. That's one little lesson. Don't take people uh, when you on site just because they've been on some other expedition. Check them out that they are good natured, not egotistical and not sort of when they get into very bad circumstances, any sort of failing character-wise is going to be exacerbated and make sure that they have a very strong motivational power in order that when they're really getting gangrene and crutch rot, which they will do sooner or later on one of these big record-breaking expeditions, otherwise that record would have been done by previous people like the Norwegians. So you know you're going to run into big trouble and you know you need people who will, when the weak, wimpish voice comes into their head, telling them that they've got to stop, they might get gangrene and have amputations. Is it worth carrying on? They've got to beat that voice in their head by their willpower. That's the sort of person you want to choose. And we've had 4000 people applying for one expedition and we only wanted two of them.
0: Uh, When you describe it like that, when you talk about the selection and the, the, the psychological temperament, it almost sounds a bit like when NASA tra- sort of tra- uh, advertises for astronauts and they go through a, quite a grueling procedure to actually decide who gets to go up in the, uh, the rockets so, or who's going to go to Mars next.
1: Oh, but there's one big uh, difference there, like, I'm afraid. Um, very big difference. For, for the, arch- the people going into astronaut stuff, never mind having to speak Russian, they need to be intelligent. They need to pass A-levels. Our people don't. We don't like too much intelligence.
0: <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure that you're, you're exaggerating a little bit. I'm sure they have to be fairly intelligent to, to sort of get themselves across uh, such, such incredible landscapes. How do you prepare? I mean, how do you prepare? Once you've got your team, what do you do? If you think you're going to go across Antarctica, what's the sort of process to prepare your body and your mind?
1: Well, you've got an ice group. And as I say, they've pretty much been chosen... And intelligence hasn't been particularly part of it. So if we know that we're going to have to have uh, communications, Morse code mostly, then we will, in the TA, Royal Signals, maybe four years train them to become expert at Morse, uh, as my wife was. Uh, she became the only woman ever to have uh, been given the Polar Medal by the Queen from all her ionospheric scientific work, um, which she was trained to do at Cove Radio and Sheffield University into ionospherics, which is groundbreaking. And uh, that's what she would have to do during periods, like for eight months when we were stuck in a little hut together, 400 miles into Antarctica, 800 miles from human beings. If we had tooth problem or appendix, which we could, um, we had to have one train to remove the appendix and to do whatever in in the mouth of the person. So one of our people out of the three, uh, myself, Oliver Shepard and Charlie Burton, Ginny was there, but she was just on the radios and so on. And one of the three had to be chosen to be the dentist. So Chelsea Barracks Territorial's two months training for Ollie Shepard, who had been a beer salesman previously. And uh, Ollie Shepard was taught how to take out teeth. He was lent uh, medical equipment, which looked like a Gestapo torture kit. And for eight months down in Antarctica and eight months up in the Arctic later, living in a hut on the edge, waiting for summer before we could try and cross them, we had tooth trouble. And the, you eat, however bad the pain in your mouth was, you didn't dare go to Ollie Shepherd and his uh, medical kit. <laughs> he was also taught at Chelsea Barracks how to remove appendix. And when three and a half years later, we were in Antarctica, he sort of forgotten which side they were on. But, you know, we did, to answer your question, have training in various skills, which we knew nothing about, including in the Northwest Passage, two-stroke motor repairs um, and Skidoo two, uh, 24, uh, no, two-stroke engines. So we got sent to the sponsor who was actually giving us that equipment, Land Rover, for instance, in the Sahara section. Yeah, so we had to do an awful lot of different courses and Ollie Shepard, the ex salesman, the one with a little bit of intelligence so he got all of them.
0: What about the um, the, the physical part um, of, of the uh, training? Do you have to learn how to just deal with cold in some way or is that just something you do when you get there?
1: Yeah I mean out of the 4,000 people I'm talking about who applied uh, a lot of them we made them join the territorial SAS which has a selection course which got rid of pretty much all of them without us having to look at them. The ones who got through to answer your question, we would take at weekends in the Territorial Army to do the Welsh 3000 race. And that checked them out very much indeed in mountainous terrain. And uh, we used to take 16 of the applicants at a time to Curig Village Hall, free accommodation, and run them over the Welsh 3000 course and got rid of a lot that way.
0: When you got to Antarctica, um, the, uh, you've been many times, but just if you think back to one of the times you've been and you've had a moment to pause and reflect when you're there, when you're not sort of trudging you know, and making your way across, what, what is it like for people who've not been? How would you describe the experience of being there?
1: Well, you're in a hut. I'm telling you about our way, not the way if you end up in the British Antarctic Survey Base. That's different. And you'll have plenty of scientific work all the time um, and probably a couple of other people. Well, when we were in Antarctica for eight months, uh, 600 miles from people, basically, um, there was Ollie Shepherd, Charlie Burton, myself, and uh, Ginny, so the base commander radio operator. So four people, and all the time you've got work. Ollie Shepherd had been trained, obviously, by the World WMO, Metrological Organization, very, very handy because for all that area, they had no one sending them weather results, so filling in a big area of unknown stuff. And he would daily, with Ginny, on Morse code, send all the met reports as as other people in the British Antarctic Survey were doing. Um, and we were in touch with them by Morse as well. Um, we would send back to either uh, Exeter or wherever it happened to be, the WMO British Centre, every day. Now, in a British space, there would be two or more MET people doing that, because every six hours you have to report. Well, for that entire eight months, Olly Shepard, the beer salesman, having been trained by Bracknell, I think it was in those days, um, by the WMO, trained meticulously to be as good as they were, and given all the anemometers and other equipment recording, He'd be outside in blizzards even checking those instruments and then going to Ginny, he would have to get through uh, via Portishead radio, ship uh, radio to get onto the British uh, phone system if she was lucky. Otherwise Morse code through straight to Cove radio in Farnborough.
0: You were clearly working very hard. But what was the actual experience of being in Antarctica like? I mean, was it a peaceful place in some ways? Was it miserable? What what was it like?
1: Well, it depends on your job. I mean, Ollie Shepard, I've just been talking about, and he twice got carbon monoxide poisoning in the generator hut because he had to keep the generators going, which is the only power source. And we're in, you know, 400 miles from anywhere we're about. I don't know, 5,000 feet above sea level. It's very, very cold. Our hut was um, made of cardboard because it had to be light, dropped off by parachute, as I told you earlier on. And yeah, you're living in a cardboard hut with that sort of circumstance. Luckily, the huge snowdrifts came up at almost the level of the roof, which gave you steadiness against the big winds, but didn't help with the cold. Relations were fine. I was up one end of the hut with Ginny, my wife, and Ollie and Charlie were up the other end And they had the joy of looking after Ginny's Jack Russell Terrier, the first dog ever to have, according to the Guinness Book of Records, uh, peed on both poles.
0: Um, You've talked to us about preparation for expeditions. You've talked to us about the expeditions themselves and what goes on. Um, Some expeditions are successful and some aren't. That's just the nature of the kind of enterprise you're engaged in. Um, For you, if an expedition doesn't work... If you don't get to do what you intended, um, whether it's the record-breaking uh, activity or you don't get to the place you need to get to, how does it make you feel? Are you, are you, you know, is it something that defeats you? It clearly, doesn't defeat you because you try again. But how does it make you feel?
1: Um, the first time you fail, you realise you're going to have to try again. And just as one example in the in this century, um, I think round about. 2002, I had a massive heart attack at Bristol Airport, double bypass, and three days on a, a life support machine and so on. And a little bit after that, I was due to um, climb Mount Everest for a charity, I can't remember which charity, on the Tibetan side with a black South African friend of mine, Sibu Sisu. And uh, on the last night at 27 and a half thousand feet above sea level, I had another heart attack and was very lucky to have got pills, glycerine trinitrate, which I took and three days later managed to get down to the base camp. And I'd failed. And to answer your question, it felt very bad uh, on behalf of my sponsor, on behalf of the charity and so on. So what you do again to answer your question is you try again. But you don't have to try on that side. You can go two sides of Mount Everest: the Tibetan side or the Nepali side. And so I tried with the Nepali side. About three years later, by which time I presume my heart would have got better. And on that side, we passed uh, three bodies: one a friend of mine, and on the again five hours from the summit, at the buttress near the Hillary step. We saw a bloke being buried who was a wonderful climber. He'd just been to the top with no oxygen, and they were burying him. It had a bad effect on my morale. And again, I wimped out and didn't make it. But the following year, which by then I was an old age pensioner, um, my uh, charity at that time had made over 4 million. And they thought, well, look, it doesn't really matter if you succeed this time, at least have a third go. Um, and we should make over two million from the the nice British public in five quid donations and that sort of thing. So I thought, well, why not have a go? So in 2009, but this time I was with an amazing Sherpa, sadly died last year in an avalanche, but a great guy called Tundu Sherpa. And he didn't treat me just as another tourist. He watched closely what I was doing wrong and therefore managed to get me at night instead of by day that's not to be, uh, you know, approved of. But at least it means you're not there with lots of other people, and um, yeah. So we got to the top, no bother at all. Um, first old age pensioner to get to the top.
0: I tell you what, if um, if I if, if I ever have a heart attack, I think it's going to be my cue to relax and not do anything like this. Clearly, you're you're made of different stuff uh, to me, which is why you're an explorer and I'm not. Um, y you, you know, you, see you talked about learning from failures. Let me ask the, flip the question around. For you, you've done so many things that are, to most people, incredible. What's success for you? Does all of these adventures, if you got to the across the Antarctic or you, you you get to both the poles, you do them. Does it all become kind of work a day or are you, are you excited when you get to the end of each of these as well? What does success look like for you?
1: After 2005, the failure in Tibet I realized that part of the failure, um, which had to do with the heart attack, was that I was very competitive, which I think is a bad thing. And so I thought, well, how can I do better? And my wonderful mountain guide, Kenton Cool, who had been up Everest 14 times or maybe more by now, um, said, well, you want to do some proper climbing, not mountaineering like Everest proper climbing, and he said, I will teach you to get rid of your horrible vertigo, which I suffered from, because on Everest you don't get vertigo, because if you look down, there's just a sort of white slope, not a drop. He said, I know somewhere much cheaper to get to, just in the Alps, called the north face of the Eiger, and it's sort of 6,000 foot drop, and I will teach you how to lose your vertigo and that'll give you the confidence on Everest. So that's sort of a zigzag way of doing these things.
0: And did you lose your vertigo?
1: I'm sorry. Oh, no, I did get to the top of the North Face of the Eiger with uh, Kenton and his partner Ian uh, Parnell. But I learned soon after that, to my horror, that when I wasn't with them, the vertigo came back. I don't blame you. <laughs>
0: um Can I ask you, um, you've been to the Poles multiple times in your adventures. What is it about the Poles that fascinates
1: you? Well, getting there when you're doing records is the key thing. Um, And planning how to get there is important when it's changing all the time. And um, you can't just say because uh, Amundsen got there on that particular route, that route's going to be the same as it was when he did it. You can't say that sort of thing. You've got to keep up with the Joneses and uh, the Antarctic um, heritage. We advise people, and the Scott Polar Research Institute in Cambridge advises people on what to do and what not to do, and that's very important.
0: Yeah. Uh, Just finally then, can I ask you, uh, we're asking everyone this question, why does Antarctica matter to you?
1: Antarctica matters in a huge way because I'm a human being and human beings now, um, you know, if they live like on Exmoor, uh, we are high enough to survive Antarctica's worst crash. So if the ice areas just get a little bit too hot at the bottom where they rub on rock, and we're talking about maybe uh, a kilometre thick ice blocks sitting on 10,000 foot high mountains down there if they start sliding down into the sea you're going to raise the level of and this is absolutely you know quite on the cards now sadly and the people who could get us down to below the 2% which you've heard of um don't because each government wants to be economically sound and being economically sound doesn't always rub with doing good climatic behaviour. Uh, do you have
0: any plans to go anywhere next uh, for your research
1: We adventures? certainly do. And our enemy, I mean, our rivals, the Norwegians, would love to know what it is. So I'm not telling you.
0: So we'll find out when we find out. <laughs> All right. So, Ranulf, it's been an absolute pleasure to hear your stories about uh, your uh, exploring and, and about Antarctica. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you a lot. Cheers. A Voyage to Antarctica was presented by me, Alok Shah. It was produced by Jessica Norman with Ben Hewis as digital producer. Music was composed by Alec Hughes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. A Voyage to Antarctica is part of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust's Antarctica in Sight program, celebrating and reflecting on the past 200 years of human endeavour across this fascinating continent. The UK Antarctic Heritage Trust is the charity championing the public understanding of and engagement with Antarctica. You can find out more at www.ukaht.org. Next time I'll be talking to Professor Dame Jane Francis, Director of the British Antarctic Survey, about Antarctica's unique role in the climate crisis. See you next week.